Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. On the show today is scientist and professor Ben Bickman. He's actually a metabolic scientist. He studies insulin in particular as is one of his areas of expertise, but fat cells, he's got a lab that he's feeding and growing fat cells and all kinds of crazy stuff. He also is an author. He has a book called Why We Get Sick, which is hugely popular. Doesn't everyone want to know that? Knowledge is power, guys. We started off with just kind of the simple question that I feel like arises within so many of us, which is why do I get fat and how do I get skinny? I feel like it's a very linear, comprehensive conversation about a topic that can be a little complicated for sure. Things like, you know, what is that fat coffee doing with butter and MCT oil in the morning? What role is that playing in ketones? What's actually happening? Are our fat cells locked in on the amount that we have? Do they grow and shrink or do they go up and down in the count? I mean, all of these questions get asked. Um, and so I, I think this is an insanely valuable episode to understanding how the body works and how to maximize it for the most efficient um, fat burning and to essentially lead to not only a longer life, but your best looking body in the meantime. So I hope you enjoy it. Please hit subscribe if you like this. Please let us know in the comments your thoughts and maybe some tips and tricks what's been working for you uh, but in the meantime enjoy this episode and this deep dive with ben bickman on really insulin we definitely don't have enough time today i have so many questions um as i always do when it comes to health but i thought i would start with sort of like the simplest maybe maybe simplest sort of baseline and also maybe one of the biggest curiosities is just why do we get fat and why and how do we get skinny? Yeah. And by skinny, I mean healthy. I don't oh, no, mean I like get skinny it. fat. Okay, great. We're just, we're just looking at both ends of the spectrum here. Yeah. Yeah. How do we get rid of the fat we don't want? Yeah. 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 So it's, I wish it were as easy as most people claim, which is purely, uh, you know, everyone so um, emphatically and enthusiastically invokes the laws of thermodynamics. You know, that's this whole idea of calories in, calories out. Thus, you need nothing more than to put yourself into a caloric deficit by eating less, exercising more, and now fat cells will start to shrink. And not to make a tangent already, but I mean, there's a lot of reasons to want the fat cells to shrink. Um, my work really highlights much of the problem that comes from fat cells being too fat, if you will, and all the metabolic and pro-inflammatory consequences of that. So beyond wanting to you know look good and wear the clothes we want and have the clothes fit on us the way we wanted to there are you know real you know even even more consequential reasons so the prevailing paradigm is that we just need our fat cells to shrink uh through cutting calories either putting less in or putting more out you know that's kind of how we balance the laws of thermodynamics and calories matter there's no question the amount of energy coming in compared to the amount of energy going out is vitally important. But that prevailing paradigm of just get into a caloric deficit starts to have multiple – it elicits multiple mechanisms to start working against it mm. because we don't want to start to starve. We don't want to be in a caloric deficit. The body senses this as a little bit of a panic. Um, and part of the evidence, although this is a little anecdotal, 
but um, for for showing how this can be problematic is look at what happens on people who are on the the biggest loser TV show. You know, everyone knows that show. And mm -hmm. boy, talk about extreme caloric restriction where they are on, you know, practically starvation diets and they are exercising hours a day. And there's no question they lose weight. Right. But that that strategy starts pitting them against their own hunger. Okay. And so, you know, case in point, imagine if I were inviting everyone over to a buffet and it is an all you can eat and it's the best chefs in the world making the most delicious foods. And I invite everyone come and come hungry. You're going to want to enjoy all this. What would people do to make sure they came to this buffet as hungry as possible? They would eat less in some time preceding this delicious dinner and they would exercise more so that they could come as hungry as possible to this event. And yet that's the exact advice we've been stating for decades on how people should lose weight. But it make yes, it will work in the short term, but it starts working. Uh, they have to now battle their own hunger more and more and more. And in this environment of readily available food, hunger will usually win, which is why in the case of this, this game show with these people who lose a phenomenal amount of weight, you never see them on a reunion tour or something similar because hunger comes back and rears its ugly head. So to put all of this in just perspective, to put a nice fine point on it, yes, calories matter. And I think it should be leveraged. It should be some step in a weight loss journey to help shrink the size of the fat cell, not the number of fat cells. That is a different matter entirely, but it shrinks the size of the fat cell. Yes, energy must somehow be accounted for or reduced, but it shouldn't be the first step. This fat shrinking journey should start by addressing hormones first, in my view, because obesity or, or fat cell manipulation <clears throat> is really a matter of two, two variables, the caloric variable, which is the only one most people look at, and then the endocrine or hormone variable. We know that animals will store or expend energy based very heavily, almost exclusively on the way on the the hormone levels and there are many hormones that play into this including adrenaline um something you know a race car driver would know a lot about uh, hormones like cortisol you know the most famous stress hormone both of those are actually stress hormones but also sure sex, over, sex I'm hormones. sure i overworked those yeah 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 that's right and and you're doing fine so you've you've made it work really well but um, you know, sex hormones, you know, uh, progesterone will have a different effect from estradiol, from testosterone. But then kind of sitting on top of all of these is the hormone insulin. It isn't, it isn't um, too bold of me to say it is impossible in a human body for a fat cell to shrink if, if insulin is elevated. Insulin is a hormone that will promote energy storage. It wants to, that's kind of the thematic effect of insulin from top to bottom. It will promote energy storage. Uh, a, an interesting example of just how profound this is, is looking at someone who has type one diabetes. Of course, in type one diabetes, a person isn't making any insulin. And if they are underdosing insulin or aren't on insulin yet, they will be eating thousands of calories a day thousands and yet they are wasting away getting thinner and thinner and thinner because they can't there is no potential to store energy on that body because there's no insulin to tell the body how to store the energy so that's basically what insulin's doing that in fact 
this will be the perfect example. Across the hallway from my office here is my laboratory, the metabolism lab on my campus. We grow fat cells. We are literally growing fat cells in little Petri dishes right now in the lab. And we will have these fat cells swimming in a little bath of, of calories. There will be glucose in this. There will be fatty acids in this culture medium, in this bath. And yet the fat cells will stay small and skinny, if you will. And it's not until we start putting insulin into the bath of these cells that they now know what to do with the energy that's all around them. Cells don't know what to do with energy unless they're told, and it's hormones, many hormones, insulin is paramount, that tells the cells what to do with energy. Now, some people have heard me say this and say, well, Ben's trying to deny thermodynamics. Not at all. My PhD is bioenergetics. I have an acute appreciation for energy in cells and organisms, but a cell must be told what to do with the energy that it has, and insulin does that. So to answer your question after this long-winded explanation, Great. the first step in my mind should be altering the foods you eat in such a way that you don't have to go hungry, you are nourished, you're eating when you want to eat, but you are lowering your insulin. By lowering insulin, you will start you will accelerate your metabolic rate. We've published papers on that. Others have for decades. We know that happens. Low insulin increases metabolic rate, so you're expending energy better, and you will start burning fat much higher. Because when insulin comes down, fat burning will turn on at a much higher rate. And so now you are learning to use your own fat for fuel. You're, you, you know, that's what fat cells are. It's like we're walking around with these energy bars strapped onto our bodies. Now we're finally opening them and using them, um, but only when insulin is low. So the first step, don't work against hunger. Just eat what you when you need to eat, but focus on foods that will help your insulin come down, which is basically, in fact, I know you've had people on the podcast previously that have touched on this in more detail, but it's my rules are control carbohydrates to help your insulin come down. Don't get your carbohydrates from a bag or a box with a barcode, whole fruits and vegetables, dynamite. But then the next two rules are absolute musts because while you are controlling and generally eating fewer carbohydrates, you don't want to be hungry all the time. So focus on protein and fat which will have very minimal, if any, impact on your insulin. So that's the first step. Help lower your insulin. And then once you've gotten to a plateau, if those fat cells aren't quite as small as you want them to be, now you take the next step, which is now I'm going to start controlling energy coming in. And that is best, in my view, when done simply through the lens of intermittent fasting. And there are many, many ways to do that. But start with the low insulin step, then the lower calorie approach. Mm, mm. That was very cohesive, clear, and articulate. Well done. Um, okay, one question real quick. I feel like maybe this is a could be a myth, but when I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. 
The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyedbydanica.com. Can we get rid of fat cells or can we only shrink them and grow them? Yeah. Oh, I'm thrilled you're asking this. Yeah. So in the average person, and, and there are exceptions to this, but but the overwhelming majority of people will fall into how I'm just going to explain it. We will start making new and more and more fat cells throughout infancy, childhood, and, and adolescence, puberty. Then when we come out of puberty, the number of fat cells we have is typically set. So this is going to be late teens in a girl, and then, you know, roughly 20, maybe even early 20s in some guys. You know, if a guy is still growing. Yeah, well, so so it's flatlined. That was a joke. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so it's flatlined until from around 20 until we get to about 60 to 65. Okay. And then it starts to come down, which oh. is interesting. But that doesn't mean fat mass is coming down. This is fat cell number. Got and it. so we would look at this kind of drop and say, oh, well, then we should be getting lean as we get old. But depending on how the person is living, what they're eating and how active they are, um, what that means is the remaining fat cells went from this big to this big because they now have to carry a larger part of the, the metabolic burden because there are fewer of them around. Mm -hmm. And that is when problems start. And paradoxically, um, fat mass itself isn't the best indicator of how metabolically sound a person is going to be. Are they going to have mm -hmm. prediabetes or hypertension or infertility or early stage Alzheimer's? All of those are very related to metabolic health, but it's really how you're storing your fat. If you have fewer cells, but they're all really hypertrophied, a hypertrophic fat cell, that is very pathogenic. It's very uh, pro-inflammatory. They're secreting mm -hmm. pro-inflammatory proteins and they become very insulin resistant, which starts to spread insulin resistance throughout the body. Or on the other hand, you have people, a small sliver of people who can just keep making more and more fat cells and they all stay kind of nice and mm -hmm. small and happy and metabolically healthy, but they just have a lot more of them. Well, it's not the number of the fat cells that's problematic. It is the size. Uh -huh. And this has been borne out through decades of incredibly well-done studies around the world. A lot of the pioneering work was in Scandinavia. We've had a lot of wonderful scientists here in the US that have confirmed these findings again and again over the years. So it's not fat cell number, it's fat cell size. And that's what, as I noted, that's where most people, that's how most people get fat, um, where where they, they get to adulthood, they stop growing the number of fat cells, then any further fat growth on the body is the hypertrophy of the remaining fat cells. And so you'd ask, do we ever lose them? Fat cells have a, a lifespan of about 10 years. And so in the average person, every 10 years, a fat cell dies, but up until the age of you know, 60, 65, it'll just get replaced by a new fat cell. And then it's at that age, you know, in the 60s, where the, as the fat cells start to die off, they don't get replaced in a kind of one-to-one -one ratio. Got it. Okay. So that theory is not a theory or that, uh, that is not a myth. That is true. Um, all right. Let's get back to insulin. I know this is like very much an area of your expertise and your research. Um, so I get a little confused. Okay. So I believe to, that this topic is challenging to comprehend to some degree because the metrics seem opposite. Like you want to be insulin sensitive, which sounds bad, 
but yeah, it's actually yeah. really good. So like there's a little counterintuitiveness to it. So maybe try and sort of run through the basics of how it works, how insulin works and the role it plays. And then I'm going to hammer down on some questions and curiosities mm -hmm. around it. Oh, yeah. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, so insulin resistance is my kind of one singular um, research focus among among several that we have always going on in the lab. But that is the one thing I focus on the most to understand insulin resistance and why we use that term to describe the problem. And it is a problem, Danica. I mean, as much as we want to say, oh, well, everything in the U.S., we're so fat and lazy and we're the worst, not at all. I've given talks about insulin resistance literally around the world. And when it comes to the top 10 countries with the most people with prediabetes or insulin resistance per capita, we're not even in the top 10. Mm. So this is a global problem. Now, what is insulin resistance? I think it's best described as imagining it as a coin. So I'm holding this coin called insulin resistance, and it has two sides. On one side is the phenomenon of insulin resistance explicitly, which is that the hormone insulin isn't working properly at all cells of the body. Now, I state it that way carefully because while some cells aren't responding very well to insulin, some cells are responding perfectly well. But globally, we call that insulin resistance. So insulin isn't working normally. That might be the best way to explain the insulin resistance side of the coin. But then we flip the coin over and it is always on the other side. You don't have one without the other in this case. The other side of this is hyperinsulinemia, which is just a clever way of saying that blood insulin levels are elevated. Now, to understand, there's a kind of a perfect example of this. To understand how insulin resistance, both sides of this, the two aspects of it, is so problematic, we can look at the examples of infertility. And in women, the most common form of infertility is a condition called polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. Mm -hmm. In men, the most common form of infertility is erectile dysfunction. Now, but each of them represents one of the side of the coins. In the female with PCOS, that is the problem of the hyperinsulinemia. But she mm -hmm. has insulin resistance because they always come together these two sides of the coin. But in her, it's not the insulin resistance per se that's the problem, but her chronically elevated insulin that always is with insulin resistance. And when insulin is elevated, one of its, not only does it tell cells what to do with energy, but it also controls the production of sex hormones. Insulin has its hand in everything. And it's a little known fact that all estrogens were once testosterone. And then the ovaries or the testes in the women or, or men and men respectively, it will take the testosterone and convert it into the estrogens through an enzyme called aromatase. Now, ovaries naturally do it much higher than, than testes do, which is why women have relatively much higher estrogen levels than men do. But okay. insulin will inhibit that enzyme. And so if insulin is high, now her ovaries are taking all this testosterone, hoping to convert it into this much estrogen, but it doesn't happen because insulin is slowing down the reaction. So she ends up with too few estrogens to go through a normal ovulatory cycle and too many androgens or too much testosterone, giving her perhaps some acne or some coarser body hair, which is all mm. a result of the higher testosterone. Now, again, that was in the woman, which was the problem of the hyperinsulinemia side of the coin of insulin resistance. But in men, 
It is the insulin resistance part of it, where one of insulin's additional effects is to help blood vessels know when to dilate or expand to improve Uh blood flow, wherever it may be. Of course, in the case of erectile dysfunction, that's obvious. But when the blood vessels become resistant to insulin's vasodilatory effects, Uh when the blood vessel should dilate, it stays constricted and thus erectile dysfunction is a result. So in some insulin resistance is a problem because it's not working the right way and we have too much, but with insulin sensitivity, then insulin does its job well, and it is also at a very low level. So if insulin is needed, it comes up, it gets the job done and it goes back and it goes, you know, starts resting again until it's needed again. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code SOMNIUM to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. Got it. Okay. And what is insulin responding to? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So insulin's most famous effect is to control blood glucose. That is its most famous effect. So if there's any obvious response, like in other words, what's the trigger for insulin, the spike, Mm -hmm. the most obvious and impactful would be anytime we eat something that's very starchy and sugary, then we will get an insulin spike. And depending on how much we've eaten and what else it's coming with, it can come up and come down very quickly, or it can come up and it may take three or four hours for it to come down. And that is what becomes a problem in our well, I would say our culture, but it's the global culture. It truly is where we wake up in the morning. Insulin has come down overnight um, because insulin is the hormone of the fed state. We've been fasting overnight. And so it's come down. We spike it up with a starchy, sugary breakfast or a sugary coffee or some juice. And then that Kellogg's for making cereal something. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 Yes. So, I mean, it's the deck is stacked against us where does, uh, where breakfast is basically just a dessert in most homes. And, and so it's ta- it takes two or three hours for it to start to come down. And by then we're getting a little hungry and we have a mid-morning snack of more starches and sugars and sugary drinks. And then it does again for lunch and throughout the rest of the day. And so we're spending every waking moment and even well into the night uh, with this, with elevated insulin. And that right there, I'm answering a different question now, is the leading pusher or leading um variable promoting insulin resistance. There are other inputs that cause insulin resistance. Absolutely. And I've studied almost all of them directly myself and published papers on them. But I'm convinced that the one that is the most impactful is the chronically elevated insulin. And all you need to do in a human is just start giving them some insulin and they'll start becoming resistant to it as it gets too high within just hours. So too much insulin is a cause of insulin resistance. I love health and this like wellness and I love testing things. I have a CGM on right now. Um, And it's so interesting to also watch it with women's hormones, but okay. So something happens. So let's just talk about food first food. You eat something, um, blood sugar rises, which then creates an insulin response. It comes in, catches it, brings it down. If it does that in a short amount of time, and if you wear a continuous blood glucose monitor and you watch this on a graph and it spikes and comes right back down, is that a bad thing? No, 
Mm-mm. No, it's not. Um, it is the frequent spiking of the glucose. If the person were doing that, um, you know, so it will ideally in a healthy person, <clears throat> of course, depending on how much they eat, but let's say they had a couple pieces of bread, just as an example, that that glucose, ideally it would come up and be back down to normal within a, a, a two hour window. Yep. The longer that starts to push out, the more reflective it is of an underlying problem. Now, okay. wouldn't it be amazing if we had a continuous insulin monitor Boy, that would to superimpose these, and you'd know. Make it. Oh my gosh! Believe me, there are labs around the world trying to do this. There's incredibly technical hurdles that that prevent it from just being done. But someday we'll get there. But but the glucose curve itself can be a little misleading because you know you are a lean insulin sensitive person. You eat those two pieces of bread. Your glucose started to come up. You had a nice big rush of insulin, and then the glu- pushed the glucose down, and you were down in two hours. It's possible. That someone who's less metabolically sound would have a similar, similar looking glucose curve, but the insulin curve could have been three or four times higher than yours was. That is the insulin resistance. So the glucose curve is incredibly helpful. Okay. But- so we're not seeing insulin. We're just seeing glucose. That's exactly so What we right. don't know is the level of insulin response. Yep. That's exactly right. You can't know that unless you are taking some blood and getting your insulin measured, which of course is technically very difficult. Okay. So then what happens when let's put another scenario out there. So I go work out this morning. Mm-hmm. I do like a little, I do a little more of like a hit training where mm-hmm. I really like really get out of breath in intervals for about 25, 30 minutes. I looked at my blood sugar. Oh my God. Yeah. That shit spiked to like 140. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty high for a workout. Yeah. Does ins is insulin's role even when there's not food involved? No, no, I love boy, you're tuck we are getting really into the meat of all this. So earlier we talked about the stress hormones. Exercise is a stress. So when you right. started really hitting it hard, there was uh, there there so there are two important things if I'm thinking far enough ahead of what I'm about to say. The first one is that during exercise, insulin is antithetical to exercise because insulin wants to feed everything in the body, including fat cells, for example. So let's look at these two opposing cells, fat cells and muscle cells. Naturally, when we're exercising, the muscle wants everything. It's a very demanding tissue. If insulin were elevated, it would be feeding both of them equally. And the muscle cell would say, justifiably, that's not fair. I'm the one who needs it all. My my metabolic rate has gone up 50 times compared to what it was moments ago, whereas the fat cell is doing nothing like it usually does. That's not entirely fair, but metabolically speaking, not doing anything. Um, So the muscle cell has a back door, whereas normally muscle is only able to pull in glucose as a fuel if insulin is there to knock on the doors of the muscle cell and open the glucose doors. In fact, really, that's the most most of where when when someone's watching their glucose curve come up and down, once it starts to go down, 80% of what's pushing it down is by the glucose coming into the muscle and insulin's open, opening those doors, except for when we exercise. When we exercise, the muscle is so hungry that it basically says, I can't wait for insulin. Insulin's going to try to feed everybody. So I'm just going to start taking it in myself. So there's mm. an insulin independent mechanism. The mm. moment the muscle starts exercising, it opens those doors on its own. And so, so the glucose starts coming into it and insulin stays very, very low. During exercise, insulin comes down very, very quickly. But huh. the glucose levels start to climb. So this is the second part of what's happening. 
which is because of the stress hormones, cortisol and particularly adrenaline or epinephrine, as it's called, these hormones and, and some other ones, growth hormone and, and, and uh, glucagon, there are a lot of these hormones that will respond the moment the muscles start exercising and start pulling in the glucose, the glucose levels start to drop in the blood. These hormones sense this through the brain and through some other mechanisms and they start to say okay the muscle is hungry let's make sure the muscle gets fed and so these stress hormones will start to come up and they will tell the liver which is like the ultimate giver you know it's like the soccer mom it's doing everything for the rest of the family and the liver liver is the a, lover yes yeah in mm. fact in persian cultures a term of endearment we say oh you're my sweetheart but in certain older persian cultures <laughs> they would say they would say you're my golden liver it's like they knew that the liver, yeah, the heart is a one-trick pony. It's important, but it only does one thing. The liver does, like it is at the nexus of all nutrients, whether it's lactates or ketones or amino acids, glucose or fatty acids, the liver handles it all. Wow. And the liver gets this message saying, oh, hey, the muscle needs something. Well, the stress hormones like uh, adrenaline will come to the liver and tell the liver to start making a whole bunch of glucose. And that... <laughs> is what pushes the glucose up during a stressful event. Even if nothing's coming in, glucose starts to go up because it's the liver that starts pushing it into the blood, all with the intention of feeding the very hungry muscle during exercise. Does that mean that it's a fatty liver then? No, no. no. Well, if you were to, uh, do you, in the case of exercise creating the glucose release, no, the liver can be perfectly lean and not essentially have a speck of fat in it. So does the blood sugar spike matter? Is it an indicator or a marker of anything, how high your blood sugar spikes in response to the hormetic stress of working out? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, no, it doesn't. Nope. Uh, generally what that's just going to be a reflection of is how perceived, how hard the stress is on the body. Basically, how hard are you exercising? Which is why if you just go on a walk, I mean, you could go on a walk that was say two hours in length, and expend the same number of calories as you did in a 30 minute hit workout. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all things equal, the, the absolute amount of, you know, power that went into it, maybe we would say was equal. And yet the glucose curve would have been nothing on a walk. It would barely would have moved because the intensity is just so minimal that yeah. as the muscles are moving, the blood glucose pressure to go down is so minimal that there's only a modest production of glucose from the liver. But yeah. when it is just sort of all out, the liver just overshoots and just flushes the blood, um, just wanting the, with, I guess, with the perspective that it's better to overfeed the muscle than it is to underfeed it. Got it. So which one is better for you? Well, yeah, people could answer that differently. I'm very much an advocate of intensity. I think intensity trumps duration every time. Good. Yeah. Uh, okay. What about ketones? What about what about the role of that? And, you know, my understanding is the brain either feeds on sugar or it feeds on ketones and ketones are produced when blood sugar is low. I guess that would inevitably mean insulin is low. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, I even, you know, playing around with this, you know, Mindy Pels, you've spoken to her before. Yep. Uh, she's, we're working together on a bunch of various different things biologically and um, so ketones is a marker I'm using. And it's 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 crazy how, again, a woman woman's cycle is so very interesting. But also when I 
have a coffee in the morning and I put some MCT oil in it mm -hmm. and some butter or some cream, some basically fat. I mean, I can make my ketones go up for sure with that more yeah. than I would otherwise. So explain to me ketones and what ketones do and if ketones themselves play a role in fat reduction. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So ketones are simply pieces of burning fat for yes. lack of a better description. So now let me explain it generally. Um, there, uh, at the whole level, at the whole body, there are multiple fuels that can fuel the cells of the body. Um, now it, it varies a little bit depending on the cell type, but in general, a cell can burn fat. It can burn glucose. It can burn ketones. It can burn lactate. Lactate is a fuel that's never talked about, but all of these are, are fuels. They're kind of the only fuels really. Um, but when the body, so, but at the whole body level, the the overwhelming majority of fuel is coming from fats or sugars your sugar burning or your fat burning in some ratio at any moment and insulin i hate to seem like i'm overstating it but insulin absolutely dictates which fuel is being used uh, I mean, authoritatively in a dictator it determines which fuel is being used if insulin is elevated the body is sugar burning in, in absolute, I mean, you can you can induce this shift in just minutes in a human by infusing some insulin. In contrast, if insulin's down, the body shifts and it goes to fat burning. Now, if insulin is down for a prolonged period of time, then then the the body burns fat to meet its energetic needs, and then basically, even though it's met its need, you know, this was how much energy the body needed. Insulin, uh, fat burning went right to there. But because insulin is staying so low, it can't stop fat burning. And so we start burning more fat than the cell actually needs for its fuel. Hmm. And if that excess fat burning, if you will, is what gets shunted into this ketogenic pathway and starts making ketones. Now, that is how we make ketones in the, in the kind of whole body just from nutrition. But you mentioned MCTs. Once again, a ketone is simply a piece of burning fat. And MCT, the shorter the fat gets, you know, most fats we eat are long chain fats. We store them very well. We can burn them too. But the shorter the fat gets, like a medium chain fat or a short chain fat, like the short chain fats that you get from vinegar, which it is a short chain fat, those cannot be stored. They can only mm. be burned. There's no option to store the so medium. I'm just reading the, the MCT oil burning. Yeah. So yes. So when you put an MCT and you see your ketones start to boost, that's now that you're burning more of the fat that you've just put in the tank. You know, you're just kind of burning that superficial. You're not getting into your own stuff. Not real. Well, well, I'm not saying it's good or bad because it depends on what the goal is. Uh, if the goal is I want to get some ketones to feed my brain, I would say thumbs up. That's a great way to do it because as you noted, yeah. the brain is itself a hybrid. Like the whole body primarily relies on fats and glucose with some additional fuels sprinkled in, but the brain is its own hybrid relying on sugar or ketone. It doesn't burn fat. It uses Got fat it. to build itself. But my lab just published a paper a few months ago. We're about to publish another one. The part of the problem That's with the, so we, we have some human tissue and some rodent tissue, um, rodent studies that we've done, but even in the human studies where we had access to brain samples from people post-mortem from tissue donors, that it's the glucose burning pathway in the brain that is obliterated when it comes to cognitive decline or Alzheimer's disease. These are brains of people who just stop. They forget how to burn sugar. 
And so they become increased, but they don't forget how to burn ketone. They are perfectly capable of burning ketones for fuel. But the average individual is living a life of so chronically elevated insulin yeah. that they never start making ketones. Uh, so someone putting some MCT in their coffee to boost their ketones, I'm all over that. I think it's perfectly So it's good fine. for neurodegenerative diseases. Absolutely. But if the goal is I really want to burn my own fat, well, then I wouldn't, I still wouldn't say, well, that's bad thumbs down, but I would say, well, now you're burning that fat. And once you've burned through that, now you'll get back to burning your own fat. I see. What about, so would that be, that would be the same then for exogenous ketones too, if you yep. were taking them. Yep. Perfect. All the, all, all, mm -hmm. yep, all the exogenous the ketones just go directly, right? It's kind of like the direct nitro line that is that immediate fuel. You don't have to kind of reproduce it through a back door. So what would make it difficult for someone to be able to activate that fat burning mechanism and burn their own ketones? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah, firstly, it would be activate the fat burning to make their own ketones. And then it would be, you know, burning the ketones next. But that would be, the, I mean, the easiest um, example of what would prevent that would be someone who has chronically elevated insulin, or in other words, they're insulin resistant. If you have two people who everything was equal on them, although it, it couldn't be, but one was insulin sensitive, who, in other words, living a life of a low fasted insulin state, and the other was insulin resistant, in whom insulin is always a chronically elevated, and they immediately, they ate a meal and they started fasting, the insulin sensitive person will have much higher ketones much sooner. You know, their ketones will start to go up in just maybe 12 hours. Um, but in the insulin resistant person, they may need 18 to 24 before you're starting to see that needles start to move. So if you have like a ketogenic diet and you, or a low sugar, low carbohydrate diet, should you be able to essentially stay in a state of ketosis through the whole thing? That, what a wonderful question. It is, I consider a ketogenic diet to be a nutrient fast. Now, uh, let me, I'll explain that briefly. If, if we were to say, let's get into ketosis as quickly as possible, where the, mm -hmm. the well, the absolute fastest way is just to stop eating. Um, if you are fasted, truly no calories coming in, insulin has to start to come down, whether it's quick in an insulin sensitive person or a little slower in an insulin resistant person, regardless, it immediately starts to come down quickly or slowly. Um, because insulin is the hormone of the fed state. It is antithetical to the fasted state. So that is a that is what I call a caloric fast. But of course, you have to eat at some point. The caloric fast has to end. Some energy has to come in. Well, if the if the point is to burn as much fat and to stay in ketosis, maybe you want to stay in ketosis because it helps prevent your migraine headaches, which it does very, very well. Or you do it because you want to maintain you know better cognition which it also does well or any other num number of reasons then i would say the best thing to do when you end your caloric fast is to move into this kind of nutrient fast other fasting starvation scientists in the past would talk about insulin like i just did which is saying that insulin is the hormone of the fed state and anytime insulin is low that would be a fasted state, whether it's a true fasted state in the caloric fast or whether it's a pseudo fasted state is in the case of what I call a nutrient fast, which is how you described it. You simply yeah. control the foods that are spiking insulin the most. And if the foods coming in, even though there may be an abundance of calories, have little or no effect on insulin, like protein and fat, well, then 
the body continues to behave in a way as if it were fasting. Insulin stays high. Other hormones like glucagon stay low. And, and the autophagy is very activated, which is kind of a, a prototypical sign of fasting. Um, and, and, and the body continues to behave biochemically as if it were fasted, even though there are, in fact, calories coming in. A good idea to reduce fat and to keep insulin low by keeping blood sugar low, but not make a fast uncomfortable and reduce cognitive function would be to take exogenous ketones, MCT oil or uh -huh. fat in some sort of liquid form that you could then be using those to some degree, but then essentially keeping yourself also in a caloric deficit because you're basically using them to like bridge the gap in comfort. Yes. Yes. That would be a perfectly suitable strategy. Um, and, and I will, I just want to add as much as I am an advocate of fasting and I am, uh, the benefits are myriad from, from the kind of soul or the mind of a person to the body. I think fasting is incredibly helpful and I'm an advocate of it. Mm -hmm. However, I'm also an advocate of eating smart independently of when you're eating or the fasting. And so I believe more important than how long a person fasts is how they end their fast. Hmm. And that I think is sometimes overlooked where a person will be gloating about their 24 or 48, 48 hour fast. And yet at the end of it, they binge and just go bonkers hmm. on a bunch of junk food. And so in a way, I'm a little afraid that in some instances, fasting has become a kind of glamorous binge purge cycle, which is mm -hmm. a, a callous way of saying it, I know, but but the person's fasting, 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 they get really hungry and they kind of break and they just eat a bunch of junk. And they know they shouldn't be doing it, but they keep doing it and they get over full and they're stuffed and they're uncomfortable and they have some shame and they say, okay, I'm going to do better tomorrow. And they end up doing the same thing again. So I would say rather than you know, trying to just grit through a long fast and getting uncomfortable and hungry and breaking, mm -hmm. maybe do shorter fasts for at first and learn the discipline that comes from planning out how you will end your fast and sticking to the plan. And, and so you will say, okay, I want to end my fast and this is what I want to eat. I'm going to give myself a little time so that I allow myself to feel full which I will more easily because I've been fasting and the stomach is a little smaller, but that takes a lot of planning and a lot of kind of mental fortitude. But again, how you end the fast is more important than how long you go. Got it. I want to ask you how the best way to end a fast, but first before that, um, maybe you could just share what pathways or mechanisms are not being maximized in the practice of a fast if you are consuming um, fats or exogenous ketones. Um, mm -hmm. what, mm -hmm. what are, what are we, what, what would I be missing if I did yeah. it that way? Yeah. Well, the only thing I can think of would be that you are, you would have all the benefits of low insulin, which is significant because if you're just consuming pure fat, you will not be spiking insulin. Right. So autophagy, which is the process of keeping a cell young, if you will, autophagy will be activated. Um, fat burning will still be turned on. Um, the body will be insulin sensitive, allowing blood pressure to be better allowing fertility processes in men and women to be better, the liver to be leaner, et cetera. So all of that would continue unabated. The only difference would be, the only kind of tangent to this would be that for that moment, you are now burning the fat that you just put in. 
And so, so you burning your own fat to make your ketones would have been paused a little bit or not paused. It would have been slowed down because now you put something in place that got in front of it. You know, if there's like this yeah. metabolic queue of nutrients waiting to board the metabolic bus, you know, fat burning is boarding, it's boarding, it's boarding. And then you start, you put some fat in the system. It immediately takes priority boarding, yeah. especially if it's MCT, which can only be burned. It can't be stored. So it goes right to the front of the queue, priority boarding, and every, all the other fat passengers have to wait in order to get on. So if you're in an overall deep caloric deficit, let's say you consume 500 calories a day and exogenous ketones. I don't even know if exogenous, I've never taken them before, but I have them now. Um, or you could, you could, yeah, MCT. you could do that. So it'd just be, you would just, you'd be in a calorie deficit, just, you just wouldn't be as, as much in a calorie deficit. You wouldn't be using as much of your fat for fuel, but if you could do that more often, it might be a win overall. Yeah. I think uh, kind of incorporating those strategies where, okay, I'm going to fast, but then for this little window, I'm going to drink in these ketones or this MCT. That might be something that helps promote satiety and helps you get through another six hours. Yeah. And in that case, I'm I'm absolutely an advocate of Got it. it. But an important thing about ketones though, and this is one of the reasons why I, I didn't want to get into this at my first, um, the first topic you brought up, which is how to shrink fat cells basically, because I feared it would be too much, but now you've brought us into ketones anyway. But the the very unique aspect, and it is totally unique among all nutrients, is that ketones represent a kind of break in the caloric model or the, the caloric view, the thermodynamic view of obesity, because the strict kind of straw man view of this is that it's just calories in, calories out. Energy has to be consumed or burned. But when it comes to ketones, we've introduced a third option, which is wasting, because every time you're breathing out ketones or you are urinating out ketones, which the body can do, if ketones start to climb, we start to literally eject these from the body to some modest degree. Every ketone that comes out represents about four calories that would have otherwise had to be burned through exercise or 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 stored and you know kept yeah. in the body as in fat or in stored glucose yeah. molecules. So ketones represent a wasting. And this is another way where I think we we get it wrong when we just focus on calories because if we're focusing on insulin first, insulin is down not only is metabolic rate up, we're literally the engine is literally idling at a higher rpm, just an idle. But then we have this extra additional exhaust valve called this emission of ketones where we are now losing you know, potentially hundreds of calories in the mm. form of ketones being breathed out or urinated out. So ketones are totally unique. They have a caloric value roughly comparable to glucose. And yet, unlike any of the others, there's a way to just get them out of the body. And mm. so it, so we don't, so when, as much as people will deride adding some fat into your coffee saying, oh, and I kind of was almost, it might've sounded like I was, well, don't do that because then you can't burn your own fat. Well, a lot of that, is just not you're not going to store it anyway. You're just going to breathe it out. So you have calories. Now it's not going to be a net negative or even net equal. You certainly would have retained more energy than you'll emit from this. But but it's not like it is. It's not like it's a one to one where okay every calorie coming in has to be stored or burned mm. through exercise. Now we've introduced this wasting mechanism that again is totally unique to ketones. Well, we have this fun system that rules so many lives of a nutritional label with calories on it. And what you're saying is that whatever the processes of 
putting a number on a bottle of MCT oil or a bar of fat or whatever it is, is that it's not in fact accurate in certain states. Yes. From a thermodynamic standpoint. 100, you said it perfectly. This is why I rail against the thermodynamic view or the caloric view of obesity so much. Not because I'm trying to say calories don't matter, but if you were to drink 100 calories of pure ketone or eat 100 calories of ice cream, in the ice cream with the insulin spike as a part of this because of the sugars in it, those calories must be accounted for either through storage or through burning. You exercise a little more, for example, but 100 um, calories of ketone, <clears throat> you can't store that. It is just going to be burned. And in some instances, it's just going to be wasted through the body through this new exhaust valve that is unique to ketones. So, it, yeah. I mean, if, it, if there were a way, and you couldn't do this because it would depend on the person's insulin levels, but if there were a way to know, okay, the functional calories in the food that I'm about to eat, the functional calories, so 100 calories of a ketone, functionally speaking, it's probably only like 50 calories. You know, it, it, it cannot be, you can't fully account for it because you can't account for what ketones are going to do just by way of getting breathed out or urinated out or what ketones are going to do to increase the metabolic rate of fat cells, which is something my lab has published in humans and in, in rodents. We know that ketones will increase the metabolic rate of fat cells where the hundred calories from the ice cream isn't going to do any of those things. It's every calorie has to be accounted for. So 100 calories of ice cream is 100 calories, but 100 calories of ketones, functionally speaking, is maybe only 50 or 60 calories. Are there any discoveries in your lab or in your work that upregulate fat um, disposal um, and shrinking of cells other yeah. than fasting? Yeah, oh, for sure. In fact, I, I even just alluded to some of the most compelling data. We've now published three papers on this, which is that when ketones get elevated in in an organism, it will well a human, um, you know, the peak of all organisms. Then uh, when ketones are up, the metabolic rate in fat cells will climb to about three times higher than normal. What? Yeah. So we did this in humans. We had humans come into the lab in a normal non-ketotic state, and we pulled a biopsy of fat from their belly. And then we took that little piece of kind of whitish, yellowish fat back to the lab across the hallway and measured the metabolic rate in those fat cells. And then following a period of time in ketosis, we had them come back in and we pulled another biopsy. And sure enough, the metabolic rate in men and women in those fat cells was two to three times higher across the board, closer to three than two. And so even here we have this in the caloric theory of, of obesity and, and, you know, thermodynamics cannot account for these kinds of things, but hormones can because ketones are only up normally, traditionally when insulin is low. And so this insulin is just so determined to store energy that it will suppress every mechanism that would waste energy. In mm -hmm. contrast, when insulin is low, it's a free-for-all. All of the cells, all energy starts mobilizing and the body just gets into a higher kind of catabolic or a higher burning state. Now, this isn't, to, I don't want anyone to think that I'm declaring war on insulin. It is absolutely an essential hormone. You have to have it. It is death in short order without it. Yeah. But we live in this culture, in this moment in time where most people have far too much. 
the average individual's insulin levels are about in the US about two to three times higher than what I think they should be. And the problem gets even worse in the Middle East and in in the in Indian in the Indian continent as well among Indian Asians. Uh, it's it's much higher even than what we have. Um I recently interviewed Paul Saladino, and um, he said that really one the most important longevity marker is your fasting insulin level. Yep, um, I've been saying that for years. What are your? Um, and then he went on to say, if your doctor doesn't want to give you that, do that test for you, you should get a new doctor. <laughs> like hell yeah, if a doctor doesn't want to do a test that a patient wants, then they should always be fired, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, but what? Um, what do you recommend for that, uh, the frequency of that test? And what levels do you believe are the recommended healthiest um, mm -hmm. fasting insulin marker? Yeah. Number? Yeah. So I think, I think an annual insulin test is, is great. Um, now, I am an enormous advocate of measuring insulin, focusing on it as a marker and to the point that I, I wrote a book and anyone who's listening, go buy my book, Why We Get Sick, all about insulin resistance. And I really outline one of several blood tests, and I'll mention a couple now, but fasting insulin is a great one. And to me, fasting insulin should be six microunits per mil or less. That's in the kind of conventional U US units. Anywhere else in the world who measures insulin in picomoles, you want it to be in the high 20s, you know, no more than 30 picomoles. It, that's kind of strict. And most clinicians would hear that number and, and just guffaw at it because they would say, well, first of all, there is no consensus. Insulin is so overlooked as a hormone that we've never spent the resources to find out what should be like the strict marker for it. Now, my my um, laying it out that it should be six microunits, microunits per mil, I'm not making that up. It is based on very good amount of evidence um, based on you know traditional hunter-gatherer cultures and on the statistics we know in the U.S. But the average American is up into the teens. Their fasting insulin is around 13, and it gets even higher in certain other areas around the world, like I mentioned. So you know it's about double what it ought to be. But the problem with insulin, as much as I'm beating the drum of measuring insulin and keeping it around six microunits per mil or less, insulin, like every hormone, has a circadian rhythm to it. There's an up and a down. There is an ebb and a flow to it. And it's possible that someone listening to this went for their annual checkup, demanded that the physician, which you sometimes have to, measures insulin. And reluctantly, the physician does. And the insulin comes back at, say, 9 or 10. Well, that is higher. It's meaningfully higher. It does, it does carry a greater risk of type 2 diabetes. But what if it's possible we caught it at the peak in this circadian rhythm, which varies somewhat across people, that in reality... It would have been around five or even four. That's a little bit of a jump, but let's just say it. Well, then all the more reason to look at some other tests like the triglyceride to glucose index, which which is anyone can look this up or, or go, get my, go get my book or the HOMA index or the triglyceride to HDL ratio, which should be around 1.5, although it moves a bit across the different ethnicities. But there are these other kind of lipid or fat-based tests of the blood that if someone can't convince their physician to measure insulin, that's okay. You will always get your lipid panel, which will include your triglycerides and your HDL cholesterol, and you will always get glucose. And just with those three markers, you can do two of the metrics I just mentioned. And by all means, look them up or, or look at the book, the triglyceride to glucose index, you want it less than five, or the triglyceride to HDL ratio, 
and you want that less than 1.5, those are very good signs that you're doing okay if it's below those ranges. There's one other test I just have to mention because it's, if you're friends with Mindy, then, you, you know, Mindy kind of eats this kind of stuff up. The sex differences um, with, with metabolism. Um, and isn't Mindy a character? I just, I just adore love her. her. She's so yeah. passionate. Yeah. Oh, she's, she gets fired up. I love it. So there's one other test called the adipose insulin resistance index or the adipo IR. And this is a fascinating example of nutrient metabolism and the relevance of hormones. Earlier, I said that insulin, if insulin is elevated, it shifts the body to glucose burning. And mm -hmm. we see this in part in the blood because when insulin is up, free fatty acids, which is a blood, which is a blood test you can get, free fatty acids will be down. And that's because free fatty acids come from the fat cell. When the fat cell is breaking down fat through a process called lipolysis, it'll break down the stored fat, which is triglyceride, and release it into the blood as free fatty acids. So all free fatty acids come from fat from lipolysis from the fat cell. Well, insulin abhors breaking down fat. So if insulin is high, free fatty acids will be low. Insulin inhibits lipolysis. But when insulin is down, lipolysis is activated, and now free fatty acids go up a lot. But this is where the sex differences come in, really, where if someone has insulin-resistant fat cells, which is where I believe insulin resistance starts, then they will have this paradoxical scenario where insulin is elevated, but it's not able to fully stop the fat breaking down in the fat cell. Now, that doesn't mean the fat cell starts to shrink because insulin keeps pushing fat into the fat cell or helping it come in, but now it can't stop it from going out. So the fat cell gets stuck at a certain size. It reaches a point of growth and then stops there, basically. So fat's coming in, but now fat is coming out in the form of free fatty acids. Mm -hmm. So if you have high insulin and high free fatty acids, that means you have insulin resistance at the fat cell, the very first right. stages of it. Now, the sex differences are what's very compelling in this test, whereas the previous tests I mentioned can apply across men and women equally. In women, though, women at any moment have fat cells that are breaking down fat at a, the rate of about 50% more than in men. So lipolysis at the fat cells in females is 50% higher than any fat cells in man at any given moment. And so a woman will have a free fatty acid level that is higher, you know, 50, even to 100% higher than a man's free fatty acids, because she's just constantly burn, breaking down fat. Her lipolytic rate, largely because of estrogens, is at any moment significant 50% higher or so than what it is in a man. And so now you have to look at two different metrics. So whereas in a guy, an adipose IR index, which accounts for the insulin and the free fatty acids, he is healthiest if his level of that score, the adipose IR score is less than five, because women naturally have free higher free fatty acid levels because she's naturally more lipolytic or fat burning than a man is. Her, her adipose IR index is closer to around seven for it to be considered healthy. It's naturally higher. So we have to use a different test for men and women to account for the different kind of fuel metabolism across the sexes. Hmm. So that sounds like women should be getting much skinnier. Ah, yes, it does. But that only accounts for what's coming out of the fat cell because progesterone wants to be putting more fat in to the it fat does. cells. I, yes, your blood yeah, sugar is so higher, all kinds yeah, of It things. ends up, oh, and progesterone stimulates hunger. It's absolutely a hunger hormone, um, a very real variable in, the nor in an ovulatory cycle that most yep. women might not know 
why they're feeling the way they are. And of course, yeah. I can't suppose to know what that's like. I get sometimes accused of talking about things I shouldn't. I know endocrinology very well, um, man or woman, but nevertheless, progesterone does stimulate hunger, um, but it also stimulates fat cell growth. It wants fat cells to grow. So anyway, that's why women aren't naturally leaner. They'll naturally be a little, have more fat than men by design because of the sex hormones. Um, and and even that has a deeper underlying reason. I hate to get on a tangent, but women bear the metabolic burden of childbearing. And so having more fat on her body is a metabolic insurance that if I'm going to get pregnant, I need to know I have enough energy, or I should say her body should need to know that it has enough energy to carry the baby full term. But even once the baby's born, traditionally, of course, her metabolic work isn't done because now she's going to start oozing her fat into her breast milk to help that yeah. little baby stay as chubby as possible. So women literally need more fat to be fertile. And that's, mm. uh, and that's reflected in the fact that you cannot have puberty happen unless the fat derived hormone leptin is elevated. There's no puberty without leptin and there's no leptin without fat cells. And women make more leptin in her, in their fat cells than men do. And in general, just need more of it than men do. And mm -hmm. that's kind of her body's way. It's her brain's way of saying, do we have enough fat to carry a baby? And, and the leptin will be the signal that tells the brain. In fact, puberty starts with leptin. If, if you take out the leptin, there's no puberty, no development um, in, in, any, in any body. Um, and so people who have leptin mutations won't go through puberty unless you give them leptin. It's mm -hmm. that essential to, to development. But again, women just have a greater metab metabolic burden, you know, by design. Right. And so she has to have more fat. The body's literally designed for it, but mm -hmm. she turns over her fat more than a guy does. Whereas mm -hmm. a guy's fat cells just kind of sit a little more static, leaking a little more slowly, but inputting a little more slowly mm -hmm. in a woman's it's coming through fats coming in, but fats coming out. We're workers. Yeah. Well, that explains why amenorrhea is, uh, you yes. know, you lose your cycle because you don't have enough fat to carry a baby. So your body goes, peace, we ain't doing yep. that. Yep. We're yep. not so ready not enough for that. Fat means not enough leptin and not enough leptin means that the brain shuts all of puberty and fertility down. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about obviously uh, insulin, um, sort of blood sugar and its relationship with food, um, ketones, metabolic rates increasing with that. So I want to get to really the role of, of the macronutrients. And because the only thing that doesn't raise blood sugar, which inevitably then activates your insulin response is fat. So I'm pretty sure you, I don't know if you can live off of just fat. So when would you share what the reason is for consuming protein, which people don't, you know, don't realize that protein does make your blood sugar rise, not to the degree that carbohydrates do, mm -hmm. but it does. Mm -hmm. um, and then also then the role of carbohydrates. I mean, we can distill that down a little further. We can get into yeah. micronutrients or fiber mm -hmm. or things like that, but maybe just sticking with the, the three major macronutrients. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there are, um, when we look at macronutrients among the many ways we could view them, and we've been talking about them so far in uh, in the perspective or in the context of what they do to insulin and, and glucose, mm -hmm. but there are other aspects to identifying or defining the macronutrients, and you touched on it, which is the essential aspect of it. And with fat, 
um, you could live you could live longer probably eating pure fat than any other single macronutrient. Mm-hmm. You would live longer eating nothing but fat. I um, for a two second story. I was walking the dog and a neighbor was like, yeah, you were talking about fat and these things and like blood sugar and whatever. And you said you had like a hundred grams of fat that day. I'd be like heart attack. And I was like, <laughs> not really like, like it just depends on what kind of fat and you know, yeah. what else you're eating. Anyway, that was the response that a normal human would give. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh my God, a hundred grams of fat. That's a heart attack. Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah. Well, you got a coronary weight. And, I mean, it, it's just reflective of how powerful the message has been for so many decades on how on how harmful fat is. I mean, we right. absolutely have a fat phobic culture. And one of the hopes of my career is to play some part in dispelling that myth and helping people not fear fat. I'm an enormous advocate of fat, especially from animal sources and fruit sources when the fat comes from the flesh of a fruit which we the humans we've been eating for well since time immemorial that's you know coconuts avocados olives where you just get the flesh of the fruit and you press it and now you have an oil mm-hmm. um as opposed of course to the seed oils which i know you've discussed previously <laughs> um which are which are harmful in any number of ways and do in fact cause insulin resistance at fat cells so they're problematic even in my immediate domain of research um but yeah so i think it's Safe to say, although there's some speculation in my answer, if we were to pick, a person would live longer eating nothing but pure fat. But um, for multiple reasons, um, including that the energy would allow the muscles to stay intact. And so your need for amino acids would be diminished massively. But that is, I hate to get on a tangent, but I promise I'll come right back. That's the difference between fasting and starvation. The difference between fasting and starvation is how much fat do you have? The moment you run out of fat, it stops being a fast and now it's starvation because now you're cutting muscle in order to survive. Ah. So, I mean, that This is why you can have a morbidly obese Scotsman, as happened decades ago, under clinical supervision, fast for over 380 days. It's because he had so many hundreds of or millions of calories of energy stored on mm-hmm. and he he literally didn't eat a thing. And conventional thinking would say, well, he's he's wow. he's going to start wasting away and his muscles are going to go away. No, because the fat was providing all the fuel the body needed. And so the muscle mm-hmm. was preserved. But the moment we run out of fat, now it's starvation. Starvation occurs when you run out of fat and you start cutting muscle. So that's well, why sad. I say, yeah, that's why I say you could probably live longer on nothing but pure fat. Um and then eventually you'd start to become deficient in the essential amino acids, which is why some degree of protein is considered essential because there are such things as essential fatty acids, although we have a lot stored in our own fat cells. So if you're breaking down your fat, you're releasing those essential fatty acids, including some omega-3 fats to properly nourish the brain. But nevertheless, there are such things as essential fats. There is There are such things as essential amino acids making fat and protein the two parts the two macronutrients that are in fact essential to live a full life. Now, carbohydrates, I don't mean to sound dramatic in this, and I don't mean for someone to take that I am advocating a zero carbohydrate diet. I'm not. But the fact is a person could live and live well with not eating any carbohydrates. There is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. Um, And again, I'm not declaring war on it. Um, at all on that class of macronutrients. I think it can be part of a perfectly well done, healthy diet, but it doesn't change the fact that there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. Even (laughs) the most, even the most dogmatic 
dietitian would have to reluctantly admit that that is true. There's just nothing essential to them. Again, they can be part of a healthy and good diet, but you don't need them. And so my view on nutrition is the sum of all of this is that I would rather focus my diet on two things. Well, for two reasons, focusing on protein and fat. One, they will happen to have the least effect on my insulin, which I mm -hmm. consider to be healthy and smart for living a long, healthy life. And two, they will give me what I essentially need in my diet to ensure I'm not becoming deficient. And then the fact that carbohydrates happen to be both the biggest insulin spike spiker, although of course it depends massively on the type of carbohydrate, but also not giving me anything that I utterly need that is essential. Well, then I'm going to have that be the smaller part of my plate, if you will. And I'm going to focus most of my caloric attention on the fat and the protein. So carbohydrates are just for enjoyment. Uh, that I think is a good way of saying it. Yeah. I would be open to someone trying to prove that statement wrong, but um, it would have to be a considerable argument because the evidence is quite clear that they are not essential. Right. Well, I mean, at least, yes, that I, that seems clear. Um I know like working with Mindy, there is a list of certain um, more carbohydrate driven foods that are good for helping with progesterone. And so to keep a woman's cycle going as long as possible, you want to feed with those nutrients to give progesterone's best chance of building to keep your cycle and um delay menopause. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's probably true. Yeah. What about, um, well, we need to have the conversation about vegetables. It's so prevalent in my life right now. Like, you know, of course, Paul, you know, he uh, vehemently, yeah, he's a <laughs> maybe not vehemently, but he doesn't eat his vegetables. There's lots of those kinds of people and, and that are talking about, you know, oxalates and sort of the chemical, the, the chemical fighting, um, markers it has to remain a plant on a bush. So it doesn't die. So lectins of course are such a popular one that so many, especially Gundry have made popular, um, or well-known about. So what is the role of vegetables then? Yeah. So go I, ahead, I, just be me, divisive. It's yeah, totally yeah. fine. Well, well, Opinion. It's not, yeah. Well, it's not generally my nature to want to be too polarizing. So I will, I will start by just validating. I love that some, you have an opinion. You're, you, you listening to you I, is I do, great yeah. because you, you are happy, but I also get the impression from you that no matter what, you're okay to change your opinion if the science or if the oh, yeah. data tells you something different. And so I think as human beings, as we go along in life, we, I have lots of things that I believe in. I tell you what, I didn't believe in them back, you know, a year mm -hmm. ago or mm -hmm. five years ago. And that changes for every aspect of my life. So we have to, we have to kind of practice something. So right now, what is that practice and awareness? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. That's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. I mean, I am, I'm a scientist, which means I'm a seeker of truth yeah. and I'm constantly trying to prove theories false. Unlike some scientists these days where it's become, you know, a, almost a religious sort of fervor. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, the nature of a scientist is to prove things wrong. Yeah. I feel like that's yep. totally your guys's domain. You come up with a theory, you, you test it out, the math, the science works. And then ev there is like almost 
it seems, I don't know how many multiples of effort, but there's so many multiples of effort that go into disproving it. You guys like are a culture of like trying to vet things out wrong. It's fascinating. Well, we're supposed to be. Um, I I don't know that we are as much as we used to. Uh, There's a very interesting... Well, I, that, that's a tangent that touches on kind of cultural issues here. But I mean, there's definitely a trend for that where science is um, kind of turning into a bit of a religious fervor. Now, I don't say that to denigrate religion. I'm myself very religious. Um, but uh, but I but to me, these are different things. And, and I think that to, in too many instances nowadays, um, when when there is an, a kind of ardent, um, zealous proclamation of, you know, I believe the science or I believe in science, I think belief should have nothing to do with it. It is, it is this cold analytical process of what are the newest data and does it, does it refute or how does it challenge the hypothesis that I was operating under before that? And people have not wanted to continue to do that. They've had some evidence that they believe shows their theory is valid and then they're done. That might be why they say, I believe the science is because they say, I believe what I found is what's true. No, you cannot say that as a scientist, or if you want to be kind of thinking like a scientist does, or what I should just say is any rational person. But nevertheless, um, to the question about vegetables, I will validate the the concerns that some people have expressed. Um, there are indeed such things known as anti-nutrients in, in plants that will, to some degree or another, try to blunt, well, try to discourage the animal from eating them, humans included, by by among other possibilities, preventing the digestion or the absorption of whatever nutrients are in the plant. Now, in our wisdom and capacity, we have bred plants in such a way that very often these anti-nutrients are little, I I mean, I don't know that you could get rid of them completely, but they would be so minimal as to not truly disrupt the absorption of the, you know, the minerals, the vitamins, or some of the nutrients. Well, the nutrients would only really be, the macronutrients would only be glucose. There are such things as anti-nutrients. I believe people unwittingly expose themselves to higher levels of it when they eat concentrated sources of vegetable matter, like pea protein or soy protein, if it's not fermented. We know that those anti-nutrients can get enriched in those protein sources, ironically making it so that you can't even digest the limited amino acids you think you're getting. Mm. So, which is why I'm vehemently opposed to plant protein as a supplement, because plants are so deficient in protein in general that you have to take, say, a thousand peas and concentrate them to get the amino acid um, serving size that you want. But while you're concentrating- Yeah. Yeah, Well, that's, it's because what we've, it's unnatural. Mankind, humans are not meant to get proteins from plants because plants don't have protein. Yeah. You would be protein deficient, which is why you get a thousand peas, distill them for their amino acids. But in the process of concentrating and concentrating, you end up concentrating anti-nutrients and heavy metals, which is why lead and arsenic can be elevated in plant proteins. Yeah. These, these are in a way it's common sense and this has all been validated. There's third party entities that have tested the amount of heavy metals in protein supplements and plant proteins just st- um, steal it by a mile. Um, they are the big offenders. Now, I don't mean for this to say that no one should ever be a vegan. Knowledge um, is power though. But I can't apologize if it sounds like I'm saying that because 
humans are not meant to be vegan. And veganism is a privilege of the elite where you have to be educated enough to know what your deficiencies will be because you will have deficiencies. There's no questioning that. And you have to be wealthy enough to afford the high quality supplements to make up for it. So if you can do that, all right, well then, all right, high five, you're going to be fine, hopefully. But you have to meet those two things. And so don't be telling other people to do it if they don't have the knowledge and they don't have the means to afford the supplements to make up for it. Yes. So it's two parts. But coming back to the idea of the anti-nutrients, they are genuine, real things, the heavy metals that get enriched when you concentrate the plants, although that wouldn't be a concern in just eating an apple. But that still doesn't change the fact that there's nothing utterly essential to them. Now, there might be something I've been stewing over in my head, what you said about Mindy and the thought about measuring progesterone. There's a part of me that would think, all right, I mean, insofar as progesterone is a hormone that of course is essential to gestation and pregnancy, that's pro-gestation. You can't get pregnant without progesterone. You can't carry that little baby. Oh, you wouldn't really ovulate in the first place normally without it mm -hmm. um, or have a normal ovulatory cycle. Progesterone is among its many effects, it wants fat cells to grow, um, but but it can't do that without insulin's help. And so maybe there is something to be said for getting a little modest insulin spike from time to time and that enabling progesterone to do what it needs to do among many things, which is want fat cells to grow or want to store more fat, um, which is one of progesterone's effects independent of ovulation. It is a, it is a fat storage hormone. So maybe there's something to be said for it, but by and large, there's nothing, you know, kind of quintessentially important or, or rather essential um, to the carbohydrate. So my view is they, they are, this is a food, well, plants, vegetables, to be more precise, because that's how you brought this question up. I think vegetables are things that can be enjoyed and, and maybe even used deliberately with a purpose for a, to a healthy end. Um, and, and that's why I'm very warm to vegetables eaten not, not don't drink them, of course, don't juice them. Um, but, but in general, I would still say the bulk of what's coming in should be protein and fat. Yeah. Is there any, uh, final thought on the vegetables? Is there anything that you can't get from the fat and protein, um, from a vitamins, minerals, micronutrients standpoint that you would need a vegetable for? Well, we're pushing the limits of what I know because I'm not a dietitian. You know, I'm a nutrient kind of um, biochemist, but okay. um, I, it would be, I can't readily think of one. Like, for example, people would say, well, you got to get a banana for potassium. Well, you can get plenty of potassium from other things. They would say, well, you got to get leafy greens for vitamin K. Well, you'll get much better vitamin K from cheese or any kind of fermented dairy. Hmm. They would say, you got to get calcium from this. Well, you'll get calcium from, you know, dairy, of course. Or what's an uh, vitamin C? They'll say, well, Fiber? if you don't have vitamin C, you will you will get scurvy, and so you have to eat um, citrus fruits. Well, um, the the funny thing there is, you use vitamin C to make collagen. That's it's that's what the C stands oh. for. <laughs> and so, if you're already eating a lot of collagen because you're eating meat, well, then you make less collagen, and you don't need a lot of vitamin C. So the little teeny bit you get from meat is more than enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, fiber. Um, Fiber is not essential. Uh, there's no question about that. It's just essential if people have a particular affection for stool habits, you know, for bowel movement habits, you know, but but you don't need it. You will still have bowel movements on a purely carnivore diet. They will just be smaller and less frequent and you will have no gas. I mean, you know, there's no flatulence on a carnivore diet at all. Mm. 
Mm, wins and losses. Yeah. So that's why um, every wife wants her husband to be on a carnivore diet. Amen. Okay. Before we let's like, that's, I think this is enough information meltdown mode, maybe for, for some, for, for me and uh, digesting all of it. So maybe just kind of, I I'd love to hear at this point in time in life and with all of the research that you've done, um, just kind of maybe to share what, what your most important practices and beliefs are right now for your health. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. What a great question. Um, I, so I am, I'm a family guy, um, husband and father, first and foremost, as much as I go on a podcast and, you know, write a book or whatever that all touches on what I've learned in my training, but you know, what, who is me, my core is absolute husband and father. So I very much think about the lessons I learned in the home and in the workplace. And one kind of mantra or, or idea that keeps me grounded and enjoying life is to take my duties seriously, but not myself, if that makes sense. And so while I appreciate the duties and obligations that I have as a husband, father, as a professor, as a scientist, as, as a you know part of my, my congregation and my neighborhood at church, I take all that very seriously, but I don't take myself seriously and I don't take others particularly seriously, which allows me to laugh at my mistakes to find the humor in the chaos of life and little kids and laugh at those mistakes. So if a kid drops a cup of water on the ground, don't immediately scold and reprimand and, and get angry. Laugh about it and acknowledge that that was an accident. That kid didn't want to dump that cup over. Um, and so, again, take your duties seriously, but not yourself. That, to me, is a key to, well, I don't know that it'll make life long and healthy, but it'll certainly make it more enjoyable. Mm, I love that you ended on a mindset and a philosophy because, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was emotions and mindset and where we are in those areas. Because I think, well, especially in the last couple of years, we can all recognize that our emotions and 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 our thoughts are inseparable from our well-being because we've seen such um, you know, a decline in mental health, which then spills into physical health always. So I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you ended like that. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks everybody for listening to the pretty intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.